If you want to get everything your dog's got, you need nutrition that holds nothing back. To help unleash your dog's maximum potential, check out the new Yukonuba Premium Performance Lineup at yukonubasportingdog.com. Welcome to another episode of Canine Roll Call Podcast. I am your host, Jason Perguson. I'm pretty uh, excited about um, having a conversation with today's guest uh, coming to us from uh, the West Coast of the U.S., uh, Mr. Roy Lopez, uh, former Navy SEAL and um, Border Patrol handler instructor. I think I'm getting that right. So I will uh, I'll turn it over to Roy. Welcome. Hey, thanks. Um, yep, um, started my career right after high school, went into the Navy, um, went straight for uh, special operations. And uh, yeah, so um, uh, made it through training, um, made it through BUDS, um, and uh, ended up on SEAL Team 8. <clears throat> um, and we you know, after getting adjusted to the team and going through uh, INDOC, um, went on a platoon, and then we got deployed during the uh, the first Gulf War, and um, uh, made it through. And uh, let's see, yep, came home and uh, got out in 1992. Um, I later went to went to school, went to college, and then joined the Border Patrol in 1997. What uh, what made you interested in uh, border patrol? Um, well, uh, working outdoors uh, sounded like a great idea to me, and um, uh, just being out there and uh, defending the country, you know, serving serving the country, continuing that uh, a mentality of service to country um that i got in the navy and uh, just continued that working for the border patrol and so um shoot chasing people and uh you know uh, working outdoors and then as i later discovered working with dogs uh, sounded awesome to me what got you um what got you started in dogs i guess that started while you were in border patrol did you work with dogs prior to that at all or uh, no, no, not prior to that. I don't even think the uh, the seals had canines when I was in. Uh, at least I didn't know about it. Um, so, yeah. So I went on to the. Uh, I was in the first class for the search and rescue team for the border patrol, which is called Border Star. And so um, went. Uh, they had like a. We had like a six week, uh, selection course for that, and. Um, so you go through, uh, you know, you've got PT and you've got, um, you got medical, like first responder training, you know, wilderness EMT training, um, swift water rescue, rope rescue, um, basically puts you through the gambit of search theory and search and rescue. And so then we started a team in San Diego there, the Boar Star team, uh, where we're doing rescues and searches for uh, civilians lost illegal aliens, uh, agents that get, you know, stuck in distress. And uh, so from there, after doing that for uh, two or three years, we kind of saw the need for uh, canines to help our help us in our search for missing people. And so uh, we talked to the canine facility, and uh, they were primarily doing narcotics dogs at that point. And... Uh, so they developed a search and rescue course for us, and uh, myself and Robert Nozisco were in the first class in uh, January of 2001. And if I understand correctly, there was a little, uh, maybe a little reluctance on uh, behalf of uh, El Paso to, to, to start that program? Yeah, it was new. You know, um, everything was focused on narcotics at that point, and... Uh, just having dogs searching for people was not really looked at very hard 
and I think it had been brought up before and and it never had gotten started off and so uh yeah um they they eventually uh decided to put it together and you know kicked it off with trailing search and rescue area search and obedience and um that's how we that's what we went through for twelve weeks we we had new labs um we had one year old labs, which was a challenge in and of itself, <laughs> and we put them through twelve weeks of of training training every day, and then we finished with the certification and and went to the field and that was a huge success and so the program just continued to grow from there in fact uh the trailing program that the border patrol now has for the archives handlers came directly out of the Warsaw search and rescue program. So that initial class was uh, a class of two? Yes. Okay. All right. And yeah, um, both of us from San Diego. What, um, what, what do you attribute your, in, I guess, initial successes to with that program that helped to really drive it forward and grow it? Um, let's see. Initial successes. Um, we had, uh, we made a lot of apprehensions. So uh, where we kind of differ from a regular search and rescue team is we're not waiting. We're not sitting around waiting for a call. We are, we were deployed in the field, uh, making apprehensions uh, via uh, tracking and uh, SAR, you know, area search. And uh, so our number, it basically just came down to the numbers, um, putting up a lot of apprehensions. And then uh, we also had, a lot of big calls where the dogs were, you know, very uh, essential to the good outcome. Um, a Robert had a rescue of a four-year-old that was lost in the desert um, early on. A, a U.S. citizen lost, uh, got lost on a basically a camping trip, and so that was huge. And then we had a lot of other rescues um, with the sheriffs working side by side with them with the San Diego sheriffs and then also in the field with the border patrol. Um, and so that just kind of made it grow. So if I understand that correctly, your, your work, uh, really kind of involved finding lots of different types of people. Yes. Basically anything that, anything that came up that, um, where a dog would be beneficial, we would, we would deploy on that. And, uh, we were quick. I mean, we all, you know, we had, we deployed from home directly. And then I think one of the strengths of the Borstar team was, you know, we get there and we set up an IC with one guy and we start deploying people, you know, pretty much immediately as opposed to waiting for a full, you know, the full setup that uh, a lot of people have to wait for. Uh, and so we were able to make a lot of fines quickly before you know, other people could even get there. So that was, that was pretty huge. Yeah. I could see where, where being on the ground and, and moving quick could, could, uh, definitely increase your successes for sure. So uh, first dog you got, you said was a lab year old lab. Um, uh, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, about that particular dog and, and that process and some of the things you learned from it? what successes you had with it? Yeah. Um, love to, um, canine Malcolm lab, um, came from field trial lines and, uh, basically the, the veterinarian who bred the dog, he's looking for certain things to, you know, make, um, thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars with these field trial dogs. And, if the dog doesn't have exactly what he's looking for for a field trial, he sells to law enforcement. So uh, we got him with fantastic genetics, just off the charts, which is challenging with a one-year-old lab, but <laughs> but the learning curve happened. And um, yeah, and he would just uh, he would he would run away. He would go. I think his longest air scent was half a mile. Uh, so he's going 800 meters, finding the person, coming back to me, uh, barking, and then I'm running half a mile with him to make the friend. 
He was an excellent trailing dog also. Uh, just dragged me down, you know, more than one mountain on my butt <laughs> trying to hang on. Um, but, uh, yeah, he was just uh, he's just an awesome dog. No off switch, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, just, you know, I mean, I'm sure a lot of listeners can relate to uh, no off switch. Just come out. He's grabbing his toy. Like, let's go. What are we doing? Are we, am I feeding? Are you feeding me or are we going to work? There wasn't no like, uh, let's go hang out and, uh, you know, relax. No, no chilling on the couch. That's how he was. Yeah. No chilling on the couch. He was just all about business. He's like, if I'm out of my kennel, we're doing something. And, uh, so it was a lot of fun and, uh, yeah, he was a great, a great partner. And, uh, I worked him for nine years. Oh, wow. made it to be 12 years old. Yeah. 12 years old. But yeah, it was, uh, it was a great time. So in those nine years, uh, how many fines apprehensions would you, would you say you had? Um, we had, uh, 1964 apprehensions. Wow. According to the, uh, yeah, according to the, cause we log all of our, all of our fines. Sure. That are apprehensions in the computer system. So I actually have the number. So it's yeah, 1964, almost 2000 um, over that nine year period. And, uh, uh, you know, several rescues in there also. Probably, I think it was like 35 rescues and then uh, 11 recoveries. Oh, so the 1964 was um, apprehensions fleeing that suspects. Was just apprehensions. Yep, yep. People, people crossing the border, um, and then we go cut their sign. Uh, they activate a sensor, and we get on it with the dog, and we push it, follow it till till we catch them. Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's ten, uh, and it's also bailouts. You know, the groups will bail out of vehicles. We show up, and then we follow them also. So, yeah, nineteen hundred sixty-four. Uh, that was apprehension. Wow, that's a that's a pretty big number. Yeah, it was a lot of fun and got a lot of a lot of experience, uh, you know, along there, learning how to do things better, how to work the dog better and stuff like that over that time frame was great. And then the recoveries, we had 11 recoveries. And so um, he, I went and got trained at the uh, Massachusetts State Police in 2000, 2003, 2004, I believe. And I went to their canine uh, cadaver dog program basically and uh got malcolm trained up to search for cadavers and then i brought that program back blended it with the border patrol's narcotics detection program and formed the u.s customs border protection uh, human remains detection course okay so that first class i think went through in 2007 okay so that's an additional program i guess yeah. Yep. Um, we saw the again. We saw the need, just like with the search and rescue program. We saw the need for uh, for dogs to be able to find uh, cadavers and recover, you know, people uh, give them give people closure and stuff. And so, um, developed that program. So we have a handler course, and then developed an instructor course off of that. And uh, yeah, and so Malcolm was really effective at that also finding uh human remains i would imagine working there on the border you you could probably encounter some pretty uh i guess pretty crazy or uh, pretty hairy situations uh is there one that sort of sticks with you um well yeah i mean the one that really sticks out is uh i think it was in uh, 2009 um, we had an agent that was killed on the border um, in Campos Campo Station's AOR, and uh, basically they jumped the fence. They, when he got out of his vehicle to check out footprints, um, they jumped him, and they killed him with his own gun. Um, and. Uh, yeah, it was three on him, and then uh, and then they absconded. 
stole some of the stuff that's grounded in New Mexico. And uh, so then I was working midnights. So I came in after that happened. Um, I worked midnights. And then the next day, I got a phone call at uh, at like 11. And they said, hey, we we know your dog is, is you know, the best tracking dog that we have. And uh, we want to know if you'll go into Mexico and try to track these guys. And I was like, of course, you know, I mean, it's one of your brothers down and you're going to do everything you can to, to make it right. And so um, we got together with our uh, foreign operations branch and they, they uh, worked with the Mexican military and the Mexican police uh, so that we drove down there and then drove over to the border fence where they crossed over. Um, so what I was told by our guys, our foreign operations branch, was that they've contacted both both the Mexican military and the federales because uh, individually it's kind of hard to trust one or the other. But since they're both going to be there, it's kind of an accountability type of thing going on. So, sure. so I was like, oh, okay, this. That doesn't give me a warm fuzzy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, so, um, so uh, yeah, so we deployed with uh, the Mexican military, me and um, me and Malcolm, and uh, you know, wasn't allowed to bring my gun in Mexico. Uh, so um, deployed with them, uh, followed the track, uh, found some blood on the track and because uh, uh, one of them was I think shot in the hand by Robert uh, during the uh, during the fight and uh, so he was bleeding so we found the blood so that's nice right blood trail it was good confirmation um, so went down a jeep trail about 100 yards and then turned into the brush uh, kept following it the dog was on it so the trail was down goodness at this point it was probably you know, at least one in the afternoon. So it was down probably about 16 hours. Um, and it was about 90 degrees out. So it was definitely challenging for the dog. Um, made the turn off the Jeep trail. I went another 100 yards and then I found his tricky bag, which is what Border Patrol agents carry with them, even from the academy. And it basically where you store all your stuff in it. So we found it. Uh, the military picked it up and we just continued tracking and uh, we tracked for, I don't know, probably three miles and then we just started hitting roads and uh, I think they were picked up or something and I was like, hey, I'm, I've gone as far as my dog can go at this point and uh, so we just called it. But yeah, that sticks out in my mind as uh, uh, one of the most harrowing <laughs> situations I was in with, uh, with my dog. Yeah, I can, I can only imagine. So how, how long did you follow that, uh, that trail in, in, in total, would you say? Yeah, it was probably about three miles. Okay. You were probably a, a couple hours in there. And, uh, when I was just like, okay, the dog's exhausted and we've pretty much taken it out into neighborhoods now and uh it was it was pretty much the end yeah in mexico with no no weapon and your backup needs backup to make sure that your backup is above board yeah pretty much (laughs) that's uh yeah i didn't and i i not i did not tell my wife about that um that whole thing for probably 10 years Oh, really? After I just, <laughs> yeah, I just didn't want, you know, that in her mind. And like, hey, whoa, this is crazy. Like, you know, why did you do that type of thing? But, uh, um, yeah, so sometimes it's just better to keep some of that real hairy stuff to yourself. Yeah, sounds sure. like a, sounds like a pretty late, hairy right? situation. Yeah. So, so real quick, uh, the term tracking has been used and trailing has been used. And this is, um, 
you know, it's, it's, as you probably know, it's something that's um, brought up quite a bit in conversations amongst trainers, handlers, and those in the uh, industry. Uh, I think you said your dogs mostly did trailing. I guess I'm, I'm just curious how you delineate those two. Do you, are the terms used synonymously? Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? Oh man, you're setting me up. (laughs) (laughs) Now I get to give you my definition. (laughs) Um, yeah. So, uh, tracking, uh, the way I define it, tracking is, uh, is a drive. So it's, you know, the drive to follow ground disturbance odors or scents that are on the ground. And that can be a, you know, that's genetic drives are genetic. So it's, uh, it can be strong in the dog or it can be weak in the dog. And so we test for that and that can be, you know, seen and observed with the dog's, you know, head down posture. And, uh, that's more what people relate to like true tracking, footstep to footstep, stuff like that. That's kind of what you're seeing. And so trailing is, is a mixture of tracking drive and air scent drive. So when the trail is on hard surface, or I should say the path, when the path of the person is on hard surface or it's hot or it's aged, the dog will use tracking, his tracking drive, but he'll also borrow some air sand drive and be able to follow where the footsteps, you know, where the footsteps can't be followed. He'll be able to follow it you know, along the side of buildings or along brush or wherever the scent is going to gather as the dog goes. So you're, so, you're so we train. Yeah, we Oh, go ahead. Yeah, so you you're when you when you talk about tracking and sort of trailing, I guess I just want to clarify, you're you're describing the dog's desire to do a certain type of work, not necessarily what the dog is doing. Right. Right. In in, in some ways they're, you know, they're used they're synonymous. Uh they're used to describe the same thing, but you know, they can all also be taken out to be, okay, there's a drive, tracking drive, is, you know, and trailing is more of a tracking with air scent. And so that's kind of how we use it to explain it. Okay, so what you were doing probably was more along the lines of uh, what some folks would consider trailing. Um, I think I heard a heard a story before where you were, you were talking about the, uh, specifically the speed at which your first dog worked. Uh, if you could touch on that. Right. So, yeah, Malcolm was, you know, I talked about his half-mile recall refine. So his air set was off the charts. And uh, his tracking was good, um, but he also would trail. So trailing is kind of like quick or able to cheat, able to, you know, use use whatever comes to the dog to follow that path. And so... Um, yeah, Malcolm was true trailing. I mean, he, he would, you know, he would track, but he would ad lib when he needed to and just to get the mission done. So he would go, you know, very quick. Um, he would, you know, we'd be able to gain on people. These people are trying to evade arrest, so we would be able to actually gain on them and, uh, you know, gain time. Whereas opposed to if you're just using visual tracking, sign cutting techniques, you know, you may lose it. You have to slow down. And with the dog, you're just moving and able to catch up a lot of times. And, and then my second dog, he was more true tracking, which was footstep to footstep, which is slower. But, I mean, that dog would not get off of track. He was, he was like, you could see him, like, freak out if he lost the track. So that was really nice to be able to uh, slow down, especially for my buddy, um, slow down. My back appreciates, appreciate, appreciated that dog um, and just be able to follow and be more methodical and, you know, uh, safer in a lot of ways. Do you find one system to be more effective overall than another? Uh, by system, you mean tracking or trailing? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so when I select a dog, I'm selecting for tracking drive if that's what I want the dog to do. So trailing, that can be, that can be learned. Um, so I'm looking for that tracking drive. I'm looking for that head down posture. I'm looking for that drive to follow and stick to the 
stick directly to that path that, that person walked. And then, you know, the dogs can uh, relax or be able to trail. Um, but if I, if I didn't do that selecting and I just took a dog that was weak on tracking, it would be very difficult for me to get him to, to trail. Uh, so it's, it goes, you know, you look for tracking and you get trailing. But if you kind of train loosely trailing, it's, it's really hard to get them to stick to that. Sure. That path that the person took. You know. So your, your first dog, you, you talked about moving at a pretty quick clip. I would, I would, I would assume based on the way I understand you to describe it. Um, we see a lot of handlers who work really hard to slow dogs down. Um, seems like they're not as successful as they would want to be at times. Um, what, what are your, what are your thoughts on trying to slow dogs down that have that, uh, drive and desire to, to get from A to B pretty quick? Yeah. Well, that, uh, that drive and desire to get from A to B really quick is what you want, but definitely slowing the dog down is going to be safer for you and more effective, um, for, for the dog. So, um. I mean, one of the things I, you know, you teach, one of the things I use is I tell people to slow the dog, give the dog a slow command. So you can pull back on the leash, give kind of a pop as the dog's starting to drive and tell him slow, you know, and you can do that anytime he's drafting, you know, you can just teach him that, teach him that, give him some praise when he does it. And um, you can also just down your dog. I really like downing the dog on a track. Um, you start a track, he's, you know, we start, we start our dog. We are, part of our ritual is to start from a down, um, at the, at the actual scent article or the scent pad. And so that gives you an advantage right there because the dog has to get up. And so that lets you get in control of the dog. But then also after the dog starts, if he starts running, yeah, just put him in a down, down and say, yep. And just sit there calmly and you can just wait, wait all day for him. Like, Hey man. You know, I'm gonna. We're gonna get to the fine, but you know, you can get your toy a lot faster. And so they start to learn, like, hey, you know, if I if I actually take this more controlled, I'm gonna get to my toy faster than if I run and just lose it. So that's been that's been really effective. Great. Can can you can you sort of describe or take a take a minute to explain to folks who may not understand the type of terrain that you were typically working in i think you, you you did some work throughout the southwestern united states it wasn't all in san diego right i think you you were ended up in uh arizona maybe and and some other places yep yeah yeah we went to um every year in the summer uh not the not the funnest time to be in tucson but <laughs> it's fun for work um yeah it's you know it's 115 degrees and at night i think it cools down to 95 um, and working the Tucson West Desert, we'd go go out there every summer, and uh, we would, you know, just work constantly. I mean, they're just over there. It's like you're going from an apprehension to a search for somebody to a recovery, and basically your whole shift is going like that. I mean, we're talking, you know, May, June, July, August. I mean, it's just a rapid, rapid pace where you're just you don't even have time to really take a break. It's like, and then you're passing on to the next shift and then other calls are coming in that take priority over that. And so you're just, yeah, it's yeah, really busy. And so that's just, uh, let's see, that could go anything from sand to just hard, like caliche rock, like just pressed in to the ground where you can't see anything. It's basically like, you know, asphalt. Um, and Choya, uh, I don't know if your listeners know what Choya is, but it's, uh, Mexican jumping cactus. I think they call it that because basically you run into it all the time and it's like it jumped on you. Um, so that was challenging for the dogs because they're on the ground. You know, they don't have shoes, they don't have boots, and they're stepping on it. And then they're trying to pull it out with their mouth, but then it gets stuck in their mouth. And uh, yeah, I had one <clears throat> one time my dog was off leash and we're searching. And then I'd lose him, and I'm like, where is this dog? And I'm, so I call him, and I hear him, you know, crying from far away. And I'm like, shoot. So I walk over there, and he's got a Choya ball in each of his feet. And then where he tried to pull it out with his mouth, he had one in his mouth. And I'm like, 
oh man, I just felt so horrible. So got all got all this choice got all the choice, you know, all the stickers out of him, all the all the all the needles out of him. And uh, you know, and then he just goes right back to work. 115 degrees. He's just he just got stabbed all over with choya, and I mean that's the kind of hardness uh, you know that we need in our dogs out there. And uh, yeah, Malcolm definitely had that. Yeah, that sounds uh sounds pretty tough. So how yeah. how did the dogs handle that heat? What what did you do to mitigate that? Uh, you know how did you how did you handle it? How did the dogs handle it? Did that did it create big issues for you? Well, whenever I could, I would try to work an early shift, so like four a.m. Go out there and try to get on a get on a group early and get it finished hopefully before like ten. Because I mean, if you're starting a group at like ten a.m., eleven a.m., it's just going to be <clears throat> really hot, and the dog going to be limited. That was my experience um, as far as tracking in you know 150 degree heat midday. The heat itself, like at night, if it's 95 degrees. He could go 10 miles, no problem. But when that sun comes out and it heats the ground and everything and, and it's beating on the dog, it was really hard, really hard on him. So just watching him, I'd have to cut him off leash at that point if it was hot and just kind of let him seek shade under the saguaro, the big saguaro cactuses and under mesquite or whatever else he could find. And uh, and I would just water him, water him as much as I could. And, um, yep, and... Uh, just, uh, you know, do the best you can during the day and try to work the stuff at night was, was real effective. Sure. So those are pretty some pretty demanding conditions, uh, so it sounds like. So quick question, what is the longest, and when I talk about longest, I'm talking specifically distance, um, trail you've, you've had a success with? And this may or may not be the same one, but what is the oldest in regards to age uh, that you've had success with? Meaning you've, you know, you found that person at the end in those type of conditions. Oh, in those type of conditions. Yeah. Um, well, I had a, I had a backtrack that was 18 hours down and it was, it was at least 115 degrees out. And uh, if you would have asked me if my dog would have been able to do it, I would have said, I said no way. It's it's just too much. But uh, we uh, we took I took the dog out. We met people. They had been tracking, backtracking this guy all day. He came out to the freeway and said, "Hey, my buddy's back there. He's in distress, you know." Um, and so they got they started backtracking him, just visually visually tracking all day, and they made it four miles. Uh, and then we met them. We were swing shifts. We came out there and met them, and they're like, "Hey, we lost it. We're not really sure." And this is was in that caliche type of hard pressed in rock and there was just nothing to see maybe an occasional turnover rock or something but so i'm like well i don't know we'll just kind of look around or maybe i'll just do a big area search see if i pick up anything so i took my dog out of the truck <clears throat> to uh to take a break and i'm talking to these guys and then i look over and see my dog and he's got tracking posture he's got his head down and he's going in the direction they were heading heading south and i was like whoa Okay. Um, well, uh, let me go get him. So I got my backpack, got got it caught up to him, put his harness on, leashed him up, gave him his command zook, and uh, he just continued on that way for like another 300 yards. And I was like, wow. And then it kind of then it kind of petered out. And I was like, oh, man. And I was like, do we have any more information? I said, oh well, he just he left his buddy under a tree. And I was like, well, shoot, there's hardly any trees out here. They're only in the washes. And we were right at a wash at that point. So I'm like, well, shoot, let me let me cut him off leash at this point and see if he picks anything up. And uh, he just kind of went back and forth, boom, and dropped down into the wash. And then I hear him, you know, this is probably like a 20 feet, at least 20 feet deep, probably 40 feet, 50 feet wide wash. And I hear him run across it. I can't see him at this point. I hear his bell. And uh, I hear him scratching like up the other side of the other side of the uh, wash and then he comes running back to me does this bark bark uh, indication and i'm like show me he runs back down there and he ended up he was found a guy and unfortunately he was deceased already but uh but yeah that was that was tough and i was like that was one of those situations where i was like yeah 18 hours 
115 degrees, like, no, nah, I don't, I don't think so. What would you say your average, um, average is as far as time and, and distance when you got, when you got deployed? Um, I'd say average would probably do, um, I think four miles. Yeah. Three or four miles would be average. Average age? Oh, oh, average age, uh, average age, probably, I'd say a couple hours. Okay. Two hours down. Okay. Two, so they're two hours ahead of you when you start. Right. Yeah. In right. some pretty, so, you know, pretty nasty conditions a lot of times. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, in, so with in, that type of experience, Tucson, it's pretty open. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty open in Tucson. So they can move. I mean, they can, they can really move. Um, and then in, in San Diego, it's more, uh, there's a lot of areas with thicker brush and stuff like that. So they have to take certain trails and we, we try to slow them down with helicopters and stuff like that. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Sure. What, what would you say to folks who, who claim that, um, those longer trails hours old, uh, over longer distances or, uh, basically impossible it sounds like you've had quite a bit of experience with them but but you know again we still deal with handlers and and even sometimes departments and other folks who are like yeah there's no way a dog can be effective past you know maybe maybe 30 minutes maybe past an hour oh yeah yeah well i've seen it uh with my dogs um you know multiple times seen it with other dogs i've trained people and i've seen it um you know past you know, several hours. And it really comes down to, for me, which I don't think is, is hardly ever in the, in the debate is like, okay, time of day, uh, midday track is going to be extremely difficult in the summer. Um, humidity, um, you know, moisture on the ground and stuff like that is, is also huge. Um, so, you know, if you're tracking in the, you know, in the hills, uh, in the mountains at elevation, there's snow on the ground. I mean, that, that scent can last a long, long time, um, you know, at least a day, at least, you know. And, uh, but yeah, middle of the day, that's really tough. I'd rather work, I'd rather work a 12-hour trail in the morning than a four-hour trail, you know, at two o'clock in the afternoon in the summer for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what does your training look like to condition and prepare a dog to be able to run some of those longer more aged trails. Oh, the longer, like in the heat. Yeah. Yeah. So how are you training and conditioning to make sure that those are successful when you get those operational, uh, uh, deployments? Well, I think one of the keys is keeping, you know, trying to keep them in, in that heat as much as possible, you know, outside, um, if you can, um, rather than keeping them in AC all the time. Uh, it does take them a long time. I think I heard recently it takes them a couple months to acclimate, but we pretty much go there to Tucson for like six weeks. So we try to, you know, acclimate as much as possible. Um, so I just work them in that weather as much as I can and uh, work those long trails. And that drive, like I talked about, that drive is going to make them want to continue on. And that hardness is going to enable them to keep on going uh, you know, long, long, long distances and older trails. Yeah, sure. So, uh, we're going to take a quick break right here. If you will, uh, stay with us, uh, we'll be right back with some more conversation. If you want to get the most of your dog and your training sessions, you need nutrition that holds nothing back. Yukonuba's new premium performance lineup is built with the nutrients dogs need to help unleash their maximum potential. That starts with providing energy that matches their efforts, supporting optimal nutrient delivery, and supporting post-exercise recovery. Check out the new Yukonuba Premium Performance lineup and find your dog's fuel at yukonubasportingdog.com. Highland Canine Training offers affordable and proven dog training solutions to resolve even the most difficult of dog problems. 
Founded in 2006, Highland Canine Training also offers quality working dogs to meet the increasingly demanding requirements of today's military and law enforcement agencies. In addition, they offer first-class canine education programs at their School for Dog Trainers. So far, they've hosted students from over 30 different countries. The School for Dog Trainers offers affordable financing and accepts GI Bill and VA benefits. The Service Dog Training Division at Highland Canine Training develops and trains some of the best service dogs in the industry and offers worldwide delivery. Their commitment to customer service and support continues to set them apart from the competition and makes them a leader in the industry. Visit HighlandK9.com or call 866-200-2207 to learn more and see the difference. And we're back. Thanks for staying with us. Uh, again, we're still here with uh, Roy Lopez, retired um, Border Patrol, um, talking about his experiences uh, and uh, in working dogs. So I, I want to switch gears a bit here. So you, you, Roy, you were an instructor as well, right? A search and rescue instructor and. Uh Human remains detection instructor. Uh, how many teams would you say you've trained during your career? Uh, from beginner through through certification, I think it's like fifteen dogs. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, and then maintenance training of the guys every week. What did that uh, maintenance training look like? Was it a group, individual? Yeah, group. It could be uh, two guys sometimes, or it could be six, seven guys. We trained with the uh, El Centro canines also, the El Centro four-star canines. Uh, so, yeah, we could have like seven guys together, and we would uh, we would lay trails for each other. I would talk to them about, like, what, what they're struggling with, uh, you know, if they've ran into anything uh, during the week while they were deploying, um, you know, that their dog didn't do something right or – uh, you know, we try to fix fix problems, and if they didn't have anything, then we would just try to lay single person trails, since that's what they really needed, uh, just to get more accurate and be more effective on age trails, uh, single person trails, uh, contamination, you know, contamination at the start, stuff like that. A lot of seems like a lot of folks are going or have gone over the last probably couple decades to a little more group training where you have uh, agencies or even sometimes multiple agencies getting together once a week or once every two weeks and working together. Um, what are some of the pitfalls you see with that? And what are some of the things you found to be more effective to ensure that, you know, downtime's minimized, people are getting the training that they want, uh, and some of the other some of the other things that sort of come along with that. Um, well, I think it's, I think it's real important to have a, a training, a training philosophy, you know, embedded in you. So, I mean, we have, we have the advantage of having, you know, a course, a full course where you're learning all the uh, definitions, you're learning the techniques, you're learning the, the mindset uh, of the drive, the drive based training and, uh, how to build that drive, how to, you know, slow that drive down when you need it. And so having a foundation, I think, is key because then you can kind of go to other training units and be able to analyze, you know, the principles instead of, uh, you know, sometimes uh, there's a lot of people around that go, uh, you know, they were trained to do one trick or one thing with their dog. And in their mindset, you know, I learned it from this big name. and so. This is how you train every dog like this. And uh, so having a good uh, training philosophy foundation enables you to kind of look and say, oh, yeah, I can see where that would work with that dog, uh, but it's probably not going to work with this dog. And so we're going to have to change the training a little bit uh, like this because this dog has, you know, less of that type of drive or more of that type of drive or, you know, so just being able to have a foundation enables you to kind of go into different environments and different training schools and be able to glean, uh, you know, instead of having a camp where you're like, no, this is the, 
my way, the only way be able to kind of look in there and like, Oh, well, that's actually a really good idea. We should do that. You know? And I'm, I try to be open like that to, Hey, if you've got a better way of doing it, please let me know because I don't want to be doing it, you know, the least effective way. I want to be doing it the most effective way. So, um, yeah, I think that mindset is, is absolutely essential. Yeah. Having an open mind goes a long way, uh, <laughs> when working with dogs and, uh, even people as well. Um, from, from my experience, well, uh, in, in regards to training, training teams up, you know, that's a lot of work, uh, as you know, and what are, what are some of the biggest challenges you've faced over the years in, you know, training teams from beginning to end? Um, well, shoot, I guess, you know, some, sometimes people aren't really cut out to be a handler, <laughs> you know, um, and so finding that out is, you know, super helpful. Um, it's just, it's, you know, I don't know what it is, but, um, you know, some people struggle with being able to read the dog and, and stuff like that. So uh, sometimes you can help that, you know, and push that in the right direction, help them to read the dog and help them to work uh, properly, but sometimes you can't. So that would be, that's very difficult. Um, that's one of the, I think, one of the difficult things. Um, the dog, like I tell people, like the dogs are easy. The the dog training part is is the easy part. Like you you have the drives, so you select the dog, you got the proper drives that you need, and now you just take those drives and increase them or decrease them as you need, and then put that dog in all the environments and get him exposed to everything. Um, but the people, you know, getting the handler to understand that and to read the dog and to do that stuff that's you know that's the extremely uh, challenging part sometimes yeah we've said it for years dogs are easy people are hard <laughs> that's where you earn your money yeah <laughs> working with people's where you earn yep. your money not the dogs as much oh yeah so. you train dogs all day yeah absolutely <laughs> um so you talked about handlers being a better fit sometimes were were you involved in the selection process of handlers and if so what did that look like um, yeah, we would, uh, we had an interview process that we would, uh, go through to, uh, see what the, where the person's mindset was and that they understood, you know, the responsibility, you know, you know how it is. It's a huge responsibility and, um, you know, your life changes, uh, you know, you, you can't just pick up and go on a trip. You know, there's a lot of planning you have to do. You have to get your dog taken care of. Um, you have to make arrangements for that, um, you, you know, dog might be sick at night and making sure that the, you know, and you're up all night. Um, there's no compensation for that, you know, things like that. Um, just making sure they knew everything they were getting into when they were getting the dog. And then, um, just the work ethic of the person is, is huge. Um, especially on our team, on small teams, it's like, uh, you need to be self-managing and, you know, have integrity and, uh, a good strong work ethic that you know we're not going to tell you hey go over here and do this like you you're going to be there already doing it uh so that's that's huge yeah in internal motivation i think is probably one of the things that gets overlooked or not emphasized quite enough in handler right. selection you know having go-getters and or there's some people put it fire starters uh, can be a can be an asset yeah because i mean you know how it is it's just you're not going to be, you know, sometimes agencies, they want to pick people. Oh, this guy has the most time in and this guy, we owe it to him and this and this. It's like, it doesn't really have anything to do with how effective this, these people are going to be as a team. And remember, you're accountable. You know, if this person is irresponsible, your, your department's going to be, that's going to be falling on your department. So it behooves them to, you know, really look at that selection process and, and select based on set criteria yeah sure so switch gears a little bit back you, you talked about your first dog was a lab uh i think your second was a lab um did you work much with uh any of the pastoral breeds procured dogs um yeah we we worked anything that um would come from europe so the border patrol um get their dogs from vendors 
that get their dogs from Europe. So they just basically care about the drive. They don't care about appearance. So um, all kinds of different breeds, um, uh, lots of lots of mouths, uh, you know, lots of um, shepherds, German shepherds, um, even uh, German uh, short hair pointers. They're different. Um, yeah, yeah, they're different. So you learn something new when you're training different <laughs> breeds. So <laughs> yeah. that's fun. Um, but yeah, I just I, I, you know, we train all those different types of breeds. Um, but as long as they pass the selection test, they have the drives we need. And uh, yeah, we go from there. I'm gonna put you on a spot here. Any uh, any favorite breed when it comes to uh, trailing and that type of work? Um, well, let's see. Breed doesn't matter as long as it's a mountain. No, no, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, well, I'm, <laughs> that's an actual quote. I won't tell you from who. But um, uh, yeah, no, um, I, you know, I like the labs because I've always had the labs. But I mean, uh, German Shepherds are really nice with their tracking because they're, you know, they're very, um, they're very methodical. A lot of them. And so I've seen some really good ones. Um, so, yeah, it's, I'd say it doesn't matter as long as it's a black lab. Um, but other than that, uh, all the other ones can do fantastic jobs as well. Do you see one of them uh, faring better in those um, environmental conditions that you're having to tolerate operationally? Um, I think what I've seen is, um, as far as like, and I'm sure the um, the urban search and rescue guys that work on rubble piles and stuff have seen this also, is that the the labs work better like they're more foot sure, like on the rocks and stuff that we encounter. Um, I'm just generalizing, but you know I've seen a lot of labs in in the urban search and rescue program, and I think that's the big reason is because they're very sure on rubble and they have no problem you know, climbing over pallets or on uneven surfaces where uh, some of the you know, pointier ones will have a little more trouble with that. Um, but as far as taking the heat and everything, I haven't seen like a big, a big difference in the breeds. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Those labs definitely have a little lower center of gravity and big old web feet. So that can be uh that can be a help sometimes. <laughs> right. Right. So think of that, the web feet. Yeah, one one other thing I want to take a minute. Um, you, you talked about trailing, uh, setting up training for trailing single suspects. You talked about trailing single suspects, and you've talked about um, encountering groups as well. Um, you know, what's the difference there for the dog? Is there a difference for the dog, um, and and how they work that is one of them. Do you find one of them to be maybe? easier or are the dogs more enthusiastic with one over the other or is there no no real difference um yeah well i mean you know big groups of like you know five or more it's pretty easy for the dog um because there's so much scent and so much ground disturbance even if they're wearing you know booties over their shoes or blankets over their shoes and you can't see the footprints i mean there's still tons of scent there for the dog so sure um you can kind of get lax, you know what I mean? Because you can get to the end of your line and you can be in a jog and, you know, it's, it's pretty easy for the dog a lot of times with those big groups. Uh, so that's why, you know, I always try to dial the guys in on single person tracks. Um, and so that would be, you want to be more methodical. You want to go slower. You want to be true tracking at that point. So on every week when we came back for our training, I was always like, okay, dogs had had a lot of free reign maybe developing some some habits some bad habits and so let's clean that up on our training day and, and do some age tracks uh, single person stuff like that so that's what you would probably consider to be the most difficult and that's why you want to sort of hone things back down and work on it is that right 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 so i mean if the dog can track a single person aged you know and uh hard surfaces and stuff like that, then they can, they can easily follow 
you know, five or more people in the brush. Uh, so yeah, trying, trying to train to the, the highest standard. So what is the largest group you've encountered at the end of a trail? Well, at the end of a trail? Yeah. I think it was like 48. Oh, 48 wow. people. <laughs> yeah. And I had help with that. I had, we had helicopter. We had, you know, several agents in the area rounding people up. So, yeah, it's, it can be done single-handedly, but it's helpful. It depends on the demeanor of the group. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Um, so 48 people moving together, that, um, did you know you were looking for a group that size? Did the dog give you information that, that, that there, this was probably a larger group? How did that work? Um, yeah, I mean, they, it's, you can see there's a lot of signs, so you can kind of generalize. I mean, maybe there are people that can be more specific, but I'd be like, yeah, this looks like at least 25 people, that type of thing. And then, you know, the dog is, you know, depending on how old that, track is um you know that dog is pretty much head up because there's so much scent in the air uh from that many people so yeah how do you handle these large groups um well it, like um it depends like what they're what they're doing what their mindset is um sometimes you can, if i can get up to them without them seeing me that's ideal um because then I can just start laying people down from the back of the group. I'll just touch them, you know, basically let them know where I am and tell them, Siéntate. tell them to sit down and uh, try to get as many people as I can, four, five, six, however many I can get. And then uh, and I can do that. And then I basically get myself in the middle of the group or if I can get to the front and just in that time, you know, use a command presence and just have everybody stop at that point. And, you know, get hands-on if people try to flee a little bit, especially the guys that are guiding the group, you know, they might try to get people to scatter or they themselves run because there's more uh, more chance of them doing jail time, stuff like that. Yeah. But, yeah, it's it's just a mixed bag. I mean, it's, I've, I've walked up on groups at night when they're sleeping. And so at that point, I just kind of sneak in there and uh, start hooking them together with the flex, you know, the flex cuff. Flex cuff, yeah. Yeah, I just while they're sleeping, I just kind of start connecting them, <laughs> and then hopefully I can get making a big daisy hopefully chain. I get as many as I can before the, with that. <laughs> making a big daisy chain out of them. Yeah, yeah, making a big daisy chain, and you know that's going to give me the advantage of, of you know they're not going to be able to move as fast, uh, and then you know try to get all the way to the other side so they're they're block their exit where the direction they were heading, and then. Um, you know, basically call for backup or, you know, put to put two or three together and, and walk them out like that. It's been a big change. Yeah. So you mentioned your, your first dog, Malcolm moving pretty quick. Um, something I experienced during my time trailing people was, uh, you know, starting off with a, a small group, some, some backup officers and then encountering a suspect, you know, half a mile away with nobody around does that um does that happen pretty frequently or does it happen at all yeah that happens all the time okay. um so that, so that part's not different I think it's, yeah no like i think if most law enforcement like we're violating a lot of uh safety protocols that are common in in regular you know law enforcement um as far as having backup and you know staying with back and stuff like we we just deploy pretty much by ourselves as a rule um and so yeah it's not unusual for you to catch up to 20 people by yourself and try to you know stay safe and affect arrests um so yeah it's, it's very common to, to be by yourself yeah it seems like safety and uh productivity uh don't always go hand in hand um particular when you're right. manhunting people right right and so, try to just try to operate as safely as you can yeah so one thing I've, i i consistently seem to hear from folks um 
is, and, and it seems sounds like you've got quite a bit of experience, so just kind of want to get your thoughts on it, is, you know, there's no way I'm going to go trail a suspect or an unknown uh, with a dog that does not bite, and I'm assuming your lab did not do patrol work. Most of them don't. Right. Um, you know, I'm not even going to put myself in that position um, to go out and locate these unknowns, this unknown, uh, with a dog that's incapable of biting people or doing that uh, handler protection or patrol work. So um, any thoughts on that, that you can share? Um, yeah, I mean, that's what I was um, born and raised in, so I didn't know any other way. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, if it was uh, if it was armed and dangerous subject, um, for sure, you know, I would deploy with, uh, with backup, and uh, we worked closely with the Bortac team. We were in the same building, and so we would, uh, we would deploy with them. So my dog would be at the front, but then they would be in a, you know, they would be in a wedge behind me. And uh, at that point, I would work really slow so I could stay and so they could keep up with me and, and, and just do it safely like that. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we had, uh, we had, you know, I had like eight guys with me with ARs. And so I think not having a bite dog was fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You yeah, know, just, my experience was, and I, and I had a, um, I had a dual dog, um, my experience was that, you know, a majority of the folks we were finding, we weren't biting anyway. So, uh, once we got to them, it was, it was my job at that point to sort of take over. It really wasn't the, wasn't the dog's job. Right. Right. So it would be similar, similar experience. Yeah, sure. Just have to, you know how it is. You, you're getting up there, you're getting up to the subject. If you can see them ahead of time, um, you know, and you're kind of making your, your judgments on what's, what's going on. Is this person, looking around is this person armed is this person passive you know all these kind of things going through your head as you're making your way up there and or keeping a distance depending on what you see yeah sure so what is what is the biggest piece of advice um that you would give current operational handlers based on your experience either as a handler or an instructor, what do, what do you think the biggest biggest takeaway is that um, that you've had, you've encountered, um, that folks are going to be able to apply and use in their day-to-day work? I think the biggest, the biggest thing that I can say um, would be um, mentally just staying uh, – not becoming complacent into what you hear from other people. Like, you know, it took me years to, to kind of learn this the hard way, but you know, people are going to be saying things when you're deploying on a search, like things like, Oh, you know, the guy's out of the area or we don't think he's here or it's been too long or the track is too old or stuff like that. And that's all mental battle that you're then fighting. Right. Cause you heard it and now it's in your head and you're going to work your dog and that's going to go down the leash um, to your dog. You know, if you're in the back of your mind, you're thinking, ah, this is a waste of time. This is too difficult for my dog or this is, you know, this person is out of the area. Um, You're going to work. That's going to go down the leash. So you really have to be, you know, mentally put yourself back in that game. Like, nope, I'm working this just the way I train, exactly the way I train. And, uh, and just sticking right to that, training that you do that protocol and not deviating or cutting corners just because you're thinking, ah, this is a waste. You always have to, you know, basically slap yourself in the face and say, Nope, I'm gonna, I'm doing this just the way I train. And I'm believing that there's someone here to be found. And so I would say that's the most important thing. Yeah. That's a uh, a really good point. I mean, that's a different perspective, right? We always hear trust the dog, trust the dog, trust the dog. But, um, Sounds like what I'm hearing you say is trust in your own skills and abilities too. Right. And your training, trust your training, trust your training, trust your training. Yep. And, uh, just mentally you have to, you have to be in that fight every single time and don't let anything you know, take you out of it. Awesome. Well, Hey, it's been a great, um, a little over an hour now. So, uh, I do want to be respectful of your time. Is there is there anything you wanna anything you wanna add? 
for our listeners? Um, I think that note that I finished on was pretty good. Um, yeah. Best TK9 handling is the best job in the world. <laughs> um, so don't forget it. It has a lot of a lot of pitfalls and stuff like that, but it's the best job in the world. And I did it for pretty much my whole career. So uh, I did it for I don't know as a handler and instructor for still am. So going on twenty well, twenty three years and uh, love every minute of it. So yeah. So so you do have a business, it. right? Yes. yes. You want to uh, you want to give concept. folks yeah give some folks information on that how to reach out to you. Yeah, so the, the website is coreknineconcepts.com, um, and you can reach me on there. There's a, there's a button you can click on and, and message me directly. Um, you can email me at coreknineconcepts at gmail. And, uh, yeah, happy to help you with anything. I do, like, I can make, you know, custom custom courses for what you need, problem solving. Um, I do area search and tracking trailing, training, uh, human remains detection. And, um, yeah, happy to help out. Awesome. That is great. So again, thank you for spending this time with us. Um, I think this is going to be some great information. Uh, again, definitely a different perspective, um, for our listeners. So once again, I want to, I want to thank you for coming on and, and, uh, sharing your stories with us. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you for reaching out. All right. Be safe. Thanks for staying with us uh, for our latest episode of K9 Roll Call Podcast. If you have ideas or topics you want to hear more about, feel free to reach out to us at our website, K9RollCall.com, or on social media. Be sure to click that subscribe button and be sure to leave us a review. Until next time, again, Jason Ferguson, K9 Roll Call. <laughs>